Okay, welcome everyone to the Governance Roundtable of the Ostrom Workshop, where we work together to better understand and manage common challenges facing our communities and in the world. My name is Jessica Steinberg, and I'm the co-director of the Environment and Natural Resource Governance Program here at the Ostrom Workshop, and also the host for today's GROW podcast. This series is designed to highlight groundbreaking work done by scholars affiliated with themes and ideas of the Ostrom Workshop at Indiana University. Uh, the Ostrom Workshop, named for Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2009, and for her husband, Vincent Ostrom, focuses on the Ostrom's work that helped demonstrate the importance of building trust and community to sustainably manage shared resources. In doing so, the Ostroms challenged the conventional wisdom at the time and helped usher in a new wave of research grounded in empirically verifiable fieldwork. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Kelsey Jack, Associate Professor at the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management at UC Santa Barbara. Kelsey directs the Poverty Alleviation Group at the Environmental Markets Lab at UCSB and co-chairs the Environment and Energy Sector at the Abdul-Latifjian Male Poverty Action Lab at MIT. She's published widely on a range of questions relating to the allocation of labor and resources to improve both economic and environmental outcomes in developing contexts. So welcome, Kelsey. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by talking, uh, sort of revisiting a little bit the research you presented today for those that uh, did not have a chance to watch or attend. So I, I, I would love for you to just briefly summarize. Today you pre presented research on sort of farmer adoption of rain catchment technologies in the Sahel, um, a semi-arid region of sub-Saharan Africa. So I'd love for you to just summarize uh, primarily first your research question and then your sort of um, main results from this project. Great, gladly. So this is a project that I'm working on in collaboration with uh, Jenny Aker, who is at Tufts University and with the Ministry of Environment in Niger. And what we're interested in in this project is trying to understand sort of broadly, what are some of the barriers to uh, the adoption of technologies by smallholder farmers? And in particular technologies that have the potential to kind of simultaneously solve both productivity challenges, but in ways that are also helpful for the environment. And so the technology that we focus on in this project is called a demiloon. Um, as uh, just described, it's a half moon shaped berm that farmers are constructing on their fields. And the goal is that when it does rain in the Sahel, which is not very often, but when it does rain, that these uh, berms are able to capture the limited rainfall and concentrate where that rainfall infiltrates into the soil. It also helps capture some of the nutrient rich topsoil. And then farmers are able to to plant in these many catchments and restore some land that otherwise would be too degraded to support agriculture to restore it back to agricultural production. So in doing so, they're also slowing the process in theory of kind of land degradation and deterioration and eventual turnover of the land. So what we were interested in testing, this is a technology that's been around for a very long time. It's not a, it's not a brand new technology by any means. It's also a technology that the main input to adoption is labor. Um, so unlike a lot of things like a tractor or even a new seed technology where you would have to go out and actually purchase it and spend money, here the main kind of expenditure is in the form of labor, which is something that you know, smallholder farmers actually potentially have available to them. Um, but yet when you look around, the, the levels of adoption of this technology and really this class of technologies remains quite low. So we set out to try to understand that in this project. And the question we were trying to, to ask is what are some of the important barriers to adoption? We were focused initially on two particular barriers that are symptoms of a lot of kind of 
environmental technologies, we, we would argue, um, which is that there's, there's short run costs with long run benefits. So you can think of this with like energy efficiency technologies, for example, you have to buy, you know, the LED light bulb, which is more expensive than the incandescent light bulb at the time of adoption, but over time it pays off. So similarly with this type of technology, farmers have to invest the labor up front, but over time the productivity benefits uh, should be sufficient to offset those initial adoption costs. Yet if you're a small farmer, that timing of cost today benefits tomorrow can be a barrier to adoption and we wanted to really explore that. Um, so we uh, set up a randomized controlled trial that had different treatment arms that were specifically designed to sort of lean on these different levers that we thought were potentially important barriers to adoption. So the basic design was we had a control group, which was just business as usual, farming practices as usual. We collected data on them, but we had no intervention. And then we had a series of different kind of nested uh, treatment arms where the treatments were delivered at the village level. So if you were a farmer in a village that was getting a particular treatment, all of your neighbors that were part of the study were also getting that treatment. Um, and we started off with the most basic thing, which was just giving people training. We figured that if people didn't know about the technology or didn't know how to adopt it, that certainly you know, doing other things wasn't gonna make a difference. So we had a training only arm, and then we layered on top of the training only arm, additional treatments that were designed to either reduce some of the costs up front of adoption or increase some of the short run benefits to try to deal with the fact of this like what I described before of high upfront costs delayed benefits. And to do that what we did is we had one treatment arm that received what we call an unconditional cash transfer, which is just a transfer of money with about 20 US dollars at the time of the year when they would be adopting the demi loans. Now it's important to notice that for this it's unconditional which means they can take this 20 US dollars and spend it on whatever. And so the only reason that it should move adoption is if they would really like to adopt because it's privately profitable, but there's something about resource availability at the time of the year that they have to be making the adoption decision that means that they actually have to be sending their labor somewhere else, that they can't afford to hire labor, that there's something going on such that having more cash on hand would allow them to adopt. Otherwise, without that cash on hand, they cannot. So that's one treatment. And then the second main treatment is a conditional cash transfer arm, which just raises the short run benefits of adoption by paying farmers per demi loon that they adopt. So you can think of this almost as like a payments for ecosystem services style thing where you know, you're basically helping to make it more profitable to do something that is good for the farmer, but also have some external benefits as well. Um, and, and you know, there were other kinds of things going on, but basically we do these trainings and these interventions in 2018, and then we follow farmers for three years afterwards and record both survey data. They tell us about their agricultural practices. They tell us about their land use. They tell us about how their family's doing, a bunch of other things like that. And then also sending enumerators to the fields to actually observe adoption outcomes and count the number of demi loons that were actually on the plot. So we have three years of data for that. So the results, uh, to, to kind of summarize, it actually turns out to be a relatively simple story, which is that uh, contrary to our expectations when we designed this uh, project, um, training turns out to be the most important thing. So when we deliver training to farmers in the training only treatment arm, we get a 90 percentage point uh, treatment effect on the probability of adoption. And so the way to think about that is in the control group, about 4% of farmers have any demi loons on their field. Six months after the training, on 
the fields of farmers who are, who are part of the training treatment arm, that means they were signed to training, that uh, we have about 95% of farmers have some demand on their field. So this is like a totally unheard of magnitude of a treatment effect for, for awesome. really any kind of intervention. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then we can look at a bunch of other things about the level of adoption. We can look at, uh, at who is adopting, you know, we can do all of that stuff. But, but really the kind of headline result out of this study is that just giving training in this case seems to be what is key. That the financial constraints that we were really interested in exploring through the design turned out to be really second order because this appears to be a technology that everybody wants to adopt. And it's one where the upfront costs are substantial but they're in a form which is labor as opposed to capital, which is something that farmers can afford to expend. So that's kind of the, the headline. You know, there's a, there's a bunch more uh, nuance and detail in the paper. Sure, sure. Um, but the one other thing that I think is worth pointing out is that, you know, not only do we see these large adoption impacts, but we also measure impacts on agricultural revenue and can do some kind of back of the envelope cost benefit assessment and see that on average for farmers, this is a technology that pays for itself even within the first year. So unlike some of the broader class of environmental technologies where it takes you know, five years or 10 years to pay off, this is one where, where the, the, the benefits appear to be actually quite short term. And if anything, better than what the agronomists seem to have estimated in the past. So that's really amazing to me, right? Because this is, this is really good news. It seems like it's kind of a um, low cost intervention that's yielding double wins, right? Environmental wins and economic wins. And we just I can't think of any other, <laughs> any other <laughs> sort of fantastic <laughs> good news stories, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so that makes me ask one or two questions just to follow up. Of, sure. um, what does this mean that either the sort of policymakers should do either? I mean, your context is in Niger. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I mentioned that at the beginning or we had a chance to talk about that. Yeah. Your context is in Niger. So the question I have is sort of, what does this mean for policymakers or, or aid specialists in mm-hmm. Niger or beyond? So that's mm-hmm. kind of two questions yeah. about what it means for policy um, actors and practitioners, as well as potentially scope conditions beyond Niger. Where else would you expect to find these kinds of results with such, uh, frankly, amazing yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. consequences? Yeah, no, it's it is a great question, and it's one that I think we've wrestled with with a lot. Because I mean, one thing I will say is that relative to the, you know, there's a very large literature on training for different kinds of behavior change and for different kinds of technology adoption. And for the most part, it has been largely disappointing. So, uh, you know, so, so this is really an outlier. And I think it really does beg the question about what are the magic ingredients that in this case allowed a training to unlock so much technology adoption. That's something that I, I think we don't have a slam dunk answer for. It's something that, um, that I feel really excited about future research trying to explore. So in some ways we needed to get this first data point on the table of this kind of proof of concept that training in fact can be transformational and future work is needed to understand why exactly. But I will say a couple of things that I think are really important. One is that the fact that this technology is profitable pretty much across the board is itself unusual. You know, that even technologies like fertilizer, for example, that have dramatic increases, uh, impacts on yield in a lot of contexts, they often come with trade-offs and they're often overutilized or underutilized. And, you know, for certain farmers, they're profitable, but for many, they're not. And so, you know, so in some ways, I think we owe a lot to the technology itself that getting adoption uh, to increase for a technology that, that is profitable is 
presumably much, much easier. So I think that raises some, some questions so to, to reposition your question a little bit to say in what context would DEMI loans be similarly profitable for farmers? And I would say that would be context in which there is degraded land that farmers have enough other inputs to profitably bring back into production. So if farmers don't have enough labor to farm more land or they don't have enough seeds for additional land or something like that, there will not be the same kind of demand to bring land back into production that we saw in our context. And in addition that, uh, that labor in general is abundant enough at the times of year when demi loan construction is happening that this kind of investment can actually be, be, be happening. So in even an agricultural context where there's a very active off-season labor market, I would not expect this to be as effective. In our context, the off-season labor market is relatively slack. So the cost of farmers to pulling labor out of the market and putting it into demi-loon construction yeah. was, was relatively small. Okay, so that I mean, so that makes sense. And it also um, makes me think, and I think you mentioned this in your presentation today, that you know, one of the other interesting directions to go, and it sounds like you're already going, is to think about what are the, I mean, you sort of define the characteristics of the demi specifically that are in some ways like almost magical, right? That they can, that the specific, um, you know, the extent to which it relies primarily on labor and not capital inputs, that it can be done at the particular time of year, right? That we might expect technologies that have similar kinds of inputs and cost benefit analyses to yield yeah. similar levels of adoption. Is that, would that mm -hmm. be fair to say? I would, th I would think so. I mean, I think it's also, you know, whether 90 percentage points sure, is sure. the number or sure. something, <laughs> something less. I mean, I think it's also, we shouldn't expect to see such large um, effects where farmers are more heterogeneous in some of their characteristics. So this is a setting where there's, you know, a lot of the households are engaged in the same types of agricultural practices. They have so, somewhat similar family compositions and so on. So the more you get into a diversified economy where some people are growing some crops, some are growing other crops, some are also engaged in other kinds of small businesses. There, I think, I think you, again, could have large impacts on a segment of the population or perhaps not these same kind of across the board impacts that we're seeing in this setting. Okay, yeah, that makes that makes sense. I want to move on to um, one of the sort of interesting results. Your this study was really about sort of a farmer adoption on privately held land. Yeah. And you note in the paper that there haven't we haven't really seen these kinds of levels of adoption on collectively held land. And of course, as you were aware, Ray Ostrom's work really focuses on yeah. the drivers and consequences of commonly managed resources such yeah. as land. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or reflections on why you think the levels of adoption are so much higher in your study on private land than in sort of in these collective contexts where land is managed commonly yeah. among a group. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. And, and in fact, you know, this particular research setting is an interesting one to, to think about it in because the um, demi loans in Niger, a lot of where they've been most aggressively promoted is on communal land. And so there's a lot of communally held land that has gotten degraded. So part of why it's held by the community is because farmers are no longer farming it themselves. So it's, it's passed back to the community. And then uh, one of the questions is, well, can we restore it? And so some of this is being done from the perspective of, can we make it productive again? But some of it's being uh, done from the perspective of revert, uh, um, putting up sort of barriers to desertification, right? So that if you have a lot of degraded land, eventually it's going to, to, to turn into desert. And so there has been a lot of energy put into trying to get 
get um, demi-lumens and other kind of restorative technologies onto communal land. There are a few observations that I have, and these are just purely kind of anecdotal uh, types of observations. But one is that a lot of the ways that organizations have done the promotion of these um, techniques on communal land is actually just by hiring people to work. Right. So they'll go into to a community and say, you know, we'll pay everybody the daily wage if you turn up to build demi loons on this field. And so, in fact, there's not a knowledge transfer happening. There's a cash transfer happening. You know, there's a wage okay. being paid. And so many of the people in our study sample had themselves experienced demi loon construction, but as a worker for hire on communal land. And so even though they had been involved they were involved in something where someone else was telling them what to do. They, you know, they had the job of I'm the, you know, the guy doing the shovels or I'm the guy doing the measurements or something like that. Instead of being taught, you know, here's the production process um, such that they could go replicate it themselves. And so, you know, I think that I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the um, adoption on the communal land has been less uh, effective or the take-up rates have been have been lower it's just been an entirely different process it's been it's been much more of the outside organizations are going to come in have a work party get a bunch of demi loons on the field and then you know and then go and so in some ways it may be unsurprising that the communities themselves are then not saying like oh well then when there's no wage we're just going to go do more of this ourselves it's extremely difficult physical labor right so you're breaking through this kind of hard pan of the topsoil to build the demi loons during the time of the year that the soil is hardest so it's it's really difficult labor and so if the setup has always been we're going to come in and pay you to do it, then I think it sort of creates this wedge where it's no longer about restoring your land. It's suddenly about this is an earnings opportunity. So that, I mean, so that's fascinating. And actually, I'm wishing we had a lot more time to talk about this because, you know, it almost suggests that actually it isn't comparable in this way, right? That we'd really need to think about sort of the extent to which this is that workers opt like collective owners of a piece of land opt into this technology collectively and actually see it as their own collective investment that they have ownership yeah. over. And I'm of course making like extreme generalizations. Sure, I'm sure there are other podcasts. Out there. <laughs> but you know, I think one thing that we did not collect any data on that I would be very curious about in the uh, study region is whether we see some adoption at the community level on communal land, right? So if previously individual community members didn't feel like they had ownership over the process such that they could replicate it themselves on their own fields, presumably they weren't doing it on communal land for similar reasons. And so one question is, you know, once that know-how is in the community, does the community start to do it uh, themselves yeah. at all? And, and that I don't, I don't know. All right. Sounds like sounds like that's maybe on the docket for next project. Possibly. <laughs> maybe, maybe. maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for um, for being here. Uh, we're going to say that's it for this episode of the Governance Roundtable. Uh, I should also say the views expressed here are those of participants and not necessarily shared by Indiana University. For more information on the Ashram Workshop, please check out ashramworkshop.indiana.edu. Most of our events are open to the public and are also available via Zoom. And of course, if you like this episode, please go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is that you get your podcast and subscribe so you don't miss future ones. Thank you again, Kelsey, for joining us. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation as well as your paper, and I hope to see you again sometime soon. Likewise. Thank you right. so much. Take Until care. next time. Yep. Bye.